to connect with you. It's great to meet someone who uh, went to the same school as me. Yeah, honestly, I thought that was, uh, it's a small world. Such a small um, world. I have a production company that um, I founded a couple months ago, and one of the interns applying to it actually went to UB too, but like a newer, one of the younger ones. <laughs> so wait, uh, the the production company, that that's the BL80 production LLC that I saw on your profile, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what exactly do you do with this company? I was, I was reading about that as well. I, I know we connected to talk about your position at the United Nations and your work in that realm, but uh, I, I, you seem like quite the entrepreneurial mind and independent mind. You have a lot of uh, ventures in your past and you've been all over the world. What's, what's that like? How, how does your mind work and connect all of these ideas? <laughs> all right. So basically, um, I went to college, I went to UB to study biomedical engineering. I did an internship in it um, one summer towards like the end of my program and I hated it. I couldn't stand sitting in a room working with machines. It was, it was boring. It wasn't what I thought it would be. My idea behind it was I wanted to go into stem cell research. After I found out all the requirements, all the things that I'm gonna need, the funding alone and the amount of projects that are out there already, um, I started getting demotivated in it. And then I sat down and I was watching um, the show, The Newsroom. I, I fell heard. in love with the show. And then, yeah, it's, it's an amazing show. I definitely recommend it. Um, I've seen that so yeah, viral first the, clip. Oh, so yeah. <laughs> I would, like, why is America the greatest country in the world? And that's like the very popular scene in it. Um, I, I watched the scene and then I got interested in watching the whole show. So See, I didn't I know that that scene, I know exactly which scene you're talking about. I didn't know that that scene came from that show. Oh yeah, no, that's, that's like the first episode where everything just blows up in his face. Mm, but okay. I watched it and it was ama- it's an amazing, I definitely recommend it. Like that's that actually, show literally gifted my career. <laughs> that's actually wild that we're talking about possibly a scene right now that is more famous than the show. Oh yeah, no, that, I think that scene got way more popularity. Like I saw the scene years before I even started watching the show and then it popped up again and my, on my Facebook one time and I was like okay yeah let me just google this I was sitting bored looking for something new to binge watch and that popped in front of me mm. yeah I took a journalism class as an elective in undergrad and uh, our professor played us that scene too so it's just it, it reaches all circles it seems the the online internet surfer and college campuses and anything in between oh yeah definitely you know, you, you said something that's that hits pretty close to home with me. Uh, this show, Newsroom, affecting your life in a way that it, it changed the direction of your career. Uh, I talk about that when it comes to, you know, things like Star Trek. Like, I'm a huge Trekkie. It absolutely influenced the things that I was interested in and the things that uh, I pursued growing up. Do you think that more people are influenced by, let's say, shows that they watch to actually make career decisions? Or you think that's more of an outlier? You think that's more of an anomaly, an exception, as opposed to the uh, the general rule? Honestly, I think it, it, I'm not going to say it's a general rule, but I would say it has a lot of impact. I'm like, mm-hmm. um, that's literally one of the reasons what got me into going to journalism at first, which was the newsroom. So like TV has a huge impact. The entertainment industry in general has a huge impact on people's decisions. Because when you think about it, a little kid doesn't know what they want to be when they grow up. They watch TV, they see someone doing something cool, or they get influenced by the visuals that they see. Right. And that's how they decide what they want to do or something they start becoming passionate about and so on and so forth. So I, I do agree with you. Like Star Trek, definitely, it would have an impact on you. It would, it would also define the kind of mind that you are. Like, for example, if you're more of, um, you're a dreamer, you're an imaginative person, you, you you think of things way outside the box, you're in a completely different universe sometimes. Yeah. That's kind of what I feel like when I watch Star Trek. And this is coming from someone that's binge watching Stargate. I'm on season four right now. <laughs> oh, SG-1? You're talking about SG-1? Oh, no, I finished SG-1 a while ago. I'm, I'm actually binge watching Atlantis again. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm a huge SG one and Atlantis fan. I wasn't too big on Stargate universe. I felt like it was like uh, Dawson's Creek in space, but the other two are yeah. two of my favorite science fiction incarnations that I've, I've ever watched. I was also big into uh, sliders, which is another kind of 
uh, gem of a science fiction show until they kind of ruined that in season four ish, season three, season four. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Stargate fan as well. Yeah, see, I'm all about like fantasy shows, all that kind of stuff, like Stargate, Star Trek. Uh, big fan. Surprising, I'm a fan of Star Trek and Star Wars. I've been watch. I've watched Feed. Any of these like futuristic, sort of dystopic to a certain extent, and like things that are very hard for it to be a reality. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in it because these kind of things get you to start thinking of like what I could do, how I can make that happen. They start getting you to be more creative. You know, my opinion. Yeah, you know what's interesting about what you said is. I think that a lot of people, and I can only speak to my own experience just as a, as a creative, as a musician, uh, me talking about some of those things in my music, in my art, the idea of far reaching, uh, technologically advanced futures, whether it be utopian or dystopian, sometimes, you know, it, it, I don't even think it really matters. The fact that humanity is still around at this point. Um, what do you think prevents us from getting to what Nikolai Kardashev called type one, this idea that we can kind of get past a lot of our nation state and, and you know, abrasive and, and conflicting geopolitics to, to unite us as a world? What do you think holds us back from that? Personally, I think to a certain extent, it has to do with politics, but I've, eventually I think it's just time. It's not a matter of if, are we getting there? It's a matter of when. So, say, like, if we, if people keep persevering and pushing towards a specific idea or ideal or hope, they will achieve it eventually. It's just a matter of time. There's going to be obstacles, of course. Like, right now you have politics as an obstacle. You have um, climate change, for example. These are things that I believe that are obstacles that people have to learn to overcome or adapt to or face. So after you save this, after you, after all these obstacles are taken out of the way, you're going to reach the type one. And then from there, there's going to be something more advanced. So there's always a goal. It's like, um, I had a, I took a business class once. And one of the things that the teacher always said was, all right, if you aim for a hundred percent, you might land at 80, but if you aim at 150, 200%, you might land at a hundred, for example. So always aim for higher. And I think that's kind of the thing with like evolution and with reaching different um, perspectives to like these things. You have to aim for greatness so that when you achieve good, that's a step forward. And then greatness seems more achievable. So you aim for a higher. Yeah. Um, like so a higher limit. Are you saying that it would be better to aim for type three so we fall short on type one? Well, kind of, but I think we're really far from type one right now. So when we're like 60% of type one, when it seems achievable, then yeah, aim for type three. So aim for something that seems unachievable. But if you go straight to like type three, for example, type one seems unachievable. Yeah, so I was just, just going to say that. I, I, you know, we've we talked about what prevents humanity from getting to this point. And I've always had this idea that it was going to be like a straight line, like humanity was going to go from a pre cartesian civilization to type one, and there was never going to be any regression of some kind. And now I realize that it's probably more like a, a stock graph where, you know, you have these bull runs and then these, these bear uh, pullbacks, these corrections in the market. I think humanity evolves kind of in the same way where you'll get these kind of technological bull runs and then the a pullback in the market where maybe the, the politics, the societal uh, clashes probably don't catch mm-hmm. up to the technological advancements of the day. Yeah, there's a correction. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. Like when I, you think about it, the things that hold you back from progressing, um, when you overcome them, that's the correction, putting you back on track. I just have to say that uh, I, I was laughing it off at first because I think I really respect your adaptability that you were able to go from small talk to what do you think the fate of our civilization in the realm of the universe <laughs> very easily. Like you didn't skip a beat. <laughs> See, we're on a bull run right now. <laughs> I see I think that humanity is pulling back. I think there is a correction 
a market correction in human human evolution, societal evolution right now, which is why we're getting such polarization in the the well specifically in the states. I'm not sure where you're located, but uh, you know, for our but the, for the people who listen to us abroad, you know, if you've been watching the reality show that is the United States for the last year and a half, you probably have known that things haven't been going so well over here, and I think a lot of people probably look at that and and see that as some sort of a, a correction. Hey, better ratings than The Apprentice, though. Well, we had the guy All from right. The Apprentice running the thing, so you know, I would expect. Oh, that. What, what What do you think about that? As as far as the uh, the reality show, the kind of spectacle that is or that was the United States over the last year and some change, and not only with the the previous administration, but its response to COVID and and then kind of further and beyond its transition change of power. And then obviously Jan- January 6th, however you want to go with that, it's your floor. So basically, I think the way things have been progressing in the U.S., um, like, and keep in mind, like my, I'm originally Egyptian. So I've lived half of my life in Egypt. The other half I've lived it in New York. Okay. Okay. Now, yeah, so in Egypt, there's this, like, for example, there's a lot more corruption, a lot of um, misleading information compared to like in the U.S. So, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah, there has been a lot of pullbacks in the U.S. There has been a lot of conflicts. There was points where people were talking about a civil war. So these were all, I believe, were pullbacks. These, were, these weren't even just pullbacks. These were bearish. These were going in the complete opposite direction right. of what people are aspiring to be. You're aspiring to be united. You're aspiring to be stronger. The, this was a direction in the, this was a complete opposite direction what people were doing right now that was going that was people looking at oh being divided is better oh being a certain class is better being a certain race is better that, that you should be superior this is one of the things like stargate come into play when you think about it this is kind of like the stuff that you watch you say oh aliens think they're a superior race than humans but in our case it's we're all humans but one person thinks that they're superior to the rest which is what pulls us back, which is what takes us down. So I think what happened in the U.S., at least these past, what, think about it when I compare, the past eight years, when you compare one administration to the other, there's been a huge difference in both administrations. One started off in, um, in a certain direction, and the other one wanted to oppose that direction and change it. And then you have this new administration coming in, looking back at the past four years, trying to oppose it. So when you think about it, it's going back and forth. You're not going forward. You're just going, you're taking one step forward. And then at one point you took two steps back and now you're taking a hop forward. And then you don't even know if you're going to land. Like right now, I believe that we're in midair. We're just, Mm. we hopped up and we haven't landed yet. So we don't know where we're going to go next. Whether it's going to be a step forward, are we going to keep progressing forward? Are we going to go back to what was before? Mm. That's interesting. Okay. Oh, I was going to say, I, that's yeah. a very unique visual yeah. because you almost lose track of time and distance. Yeah. Exactly. Like, you're I in was, the unknown. I was going to say, you, you brought up Stargate, and I think there's an interesting analogy as well to be made, which is the system lords, right? The gold system lords, where you have this superiority mm-hmm. complex of people who believe that by whether divine right or class system or whatever, that they are superior. Now, I don't think that the I don't think it's as loose of a term when people are talking about you know supremacy and and white supremacy. I don't think it, it's one of those things where it's just like everybody is is a part of that. But you do have this element of that part of of the demographic who, and it's not just them, it's other people who probably have superiority complexes. I'm just using them as an example right now. Uh, they have that system Lord style superiority complex. Um, what do you think about the idea of there being a super class of society where people really think that, and I don't even think it's race-based. I actually think it's, if you're a, a member of the the surveillance industry, right? The The FBI or the CIA, are you not a super class mm-hmm. of citizen? Would you not have a superiority complex as to what you believe you can get away with or not? What do you think about that? No, no, I, I completely agree with you on that. There shouldn't, there is sometimes where people will get a little gift to their heads, where when you think about it, you're like, oh, like, um, not to say that I've experienced it or I know anyone that does it. This is 
purely what my thought is, and it's in any profession, not just maybe like, so for example, there's people that would work um, in any prestigious place. Uh, let's say if you would work for the, I don't know, Department of State or, I mean, State Department, or you work at the UN or things like that. Some people believe that, oh, we're superior because we deal with bigger issues than yours. We deal with global issues. That's not the correct method or the correct way to approach it. Your job description or who, wherever you represent doesn't specify who you are to a certain extent. Like, don't get me wrong. It does, like, I'm not going to say, oh, I go, I support the KKK or I work for the KKK, and, but I don't support what they do. That's completely hypocritical. You can't forward an agenda by not supporting. But I won't go there and say, oh, let me, I'm working for the UN, so that means I'm better than you. I'm helping progress this sense. No. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make me better in any way. It means that I have more responsibility. I have a homework to get done. I have my responsibility towards that sense. And you have your responsibility as well. Right. Because when you think about it, whether you're an FBI agent, your your job is to um, domestic terrorism. So you're focusing on domestic crimes. You're a CIA agent. You're focusing on um, overseas crimes. Mm. So international cr- crimes. You need both of them to complement each other. You need the guy who's working as a trash man to help complement the guy who's the CEO of a company or multi-billion dollar person. You can't, he can't go on his day without that little person to him doing what he thinks. So this person, whether it's the chat, like, let me rephrase that because saying a little person is not a good way to specify it or a good way to describe someone because that guy who's living in the penthouse who makes a million dollars an hour can't go on with his day without having the guy that makes minimum wage come in and do his job. Mm, you see, need that's, your employees. And, and, and I, and I, I kind of disagree with that only in the, only in the sense of once they're able to automate that with some sort of an artificial intelligence, you will see how expendable those people actually are. Because I think a lot of the people with wealth don't want that mm-hmm. dependence on that guy where if the garbage man doesn't show up or, you know, the, the, the clog or the cog of society doesn't show up to kind of fulfill their duty as that part of society, then the luxuries that they have, they don't get to keep. And this is where I think that there is a, a super class of citizen of people out there in, in which most of the rest of the world works for and works to keep in an elevated state because that lifestyle is protected by so many layers of redundancy of like, hey, if, if I lose this, your family loses this. And then that family that's connected and dependent on that loses that. And it's all the way, you know, shit rolls downhill sort of thing. Yeah, well, keep, but keep in mind at the end of the day, even if you have uh, machinery that can take over that job, you would still need the human factor to control it. So it's the same thing as saying, oh, back in the day, you would need um, what? 500 guys to lift, or I don't know, say for the, the pyramids, you would need how many people to lift one rock um, to build a pyramid. Today, you have machinery. Yes, it reduces the amount of people that are doing the task, but it doesn't eliminate the human factor in the task. Unless you start working into a perspective of an AI. Now, at that point, you would get into going, then we can stretch out to going more of like a Terminator kind of perspective. You have an AI. Okay, humans are doing this. All right, the AI is going to progress enough. And if they have the power to upgrade themselves, then at one point they're going to say, okay, well, why do I need a human to perform my task? I perform it better than them. They're there to just hurt themselves. So to protect them, I'm going to take over. So that's all like the dystopic kind of iRobot mentality and like Terminator kind of mentality films in it. So I believe at the end of the day, the time you take out the human factor completely out of a complete out of an equation that and you give um, an artificial intelligence or an AI to be the one in charge of it and upgrade themselves and learn to self and learn to rely on themselves. That's when you're just getting rid of humans in general. You're just eliminating the human evolution because humans were meant to evolve, but not evolve into AIs. You see, and you know what? I I think there's a a branch, a course of action that takes place 
that we don't consider often, but it has been proposed out there. Instead of the idea of the AI deciding, you know, humanity is more trouble than it's worth, they're either taking over or they're going to exterminate people. I think behind door number three is there is a merger of some kind between the biological and the technological. What, what do you think about that possibility? That's a possibility that I, I would agree with. Yeah, that is something that would happen. You would have a merger between humans and AI, but here's the thing. You still have the human factor. And at that point, when you merge both of them, it'll only be a matter of time until all of humanity has it or all of humanity would agree to it. So you would need a collective agreement to doing something like that because you'll also have people opposing to it, saying, oh, I, I enjoy being 100% human, for example. I don't want to have any AI interference within my body. And you have that till today. When you think about it, Amish people, for example, they're people that dislocate themselves from, techno from technology. Mm -hmm. They don't believe in technology as um, a factor in their life. And you have someone like me. I can't go a day without having a laptop or computer. I can't go a day without having internet in front of me. I need internet to be up to date, uh, up to speed on what's going on around the world, to be up to speed on certain events, uh, to, to be able to watch Netflix. Right. So you, you, you know become what, more reliant on these things. Yeah, and you, you raise a good point. But I, I also, it makes me think about this idea off of the point you raise that mm -hmm. the idea of getting to type one or reaching this sort of technological uh, escape velocity, if you will, that alleviates hum humanity from some of the natural uh, dangers and ills that it would normally uh, be subject to. Um, I think getting to that point, though, has to come with the freedom of choice. So there mm -hmm. can't be a government mandate of some kind, a federal or a state mandate that Amish people have to accept some sort of a, of a technology in their life. It's like you, you, you may not want to uh, have this technology a part of your life, but we're mandating it be a part of your life because you live in the world and, and everyone in the world is subject to these powers that be. And we're basically mandating that this is what you have to do. I also don't think that it should be the other way around, that you should be mandated to not have technology in your life by a some sort of a federal body. I think it should come with choice. Anything other than that it's the illusion of type one. If you get there by mm -hmm. force, if you get there by not, if you get there by taking people's freedom of, of, of agency away, in my opinion, it's not the, the technological utopia that it is claimed to be. It's actually um, something much, much worse. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you on that. You need the freedom, you need freedom. You need people to have the, be able to make their own choices. Mm -hmm. But which brings us back to the thing with, where you can have these technological advancements. So me having, me being a cyborg, for example, makes me superior in strength, let's say. But that doesn't mean that that makes me as a superior human. You might have a more intellectual mind than mine. So you might, you're smarter than me, but I'm stronger. We complement each other. And that's where I come back to the point where you can't have the million billionaire not he can't be a billionaire in comfort without having uh the maid that comes in and helps him set up his daily needs he he has come to rely on that so they complement each other she he complements her with a salary that she goes out and spends it and enjoys her life with and she complements him with the daily needs that he would need he or she will complement him in that need yeah. so there's the this is the part where i said you would need both in a sense, but that doesn't give that person, he or she, the right to demean that person that's providing them that service. So there is um Can I ask vampire. you this question? Can I ask you this question? Yeah, go ahead. The, this AI that we're talking about, that we've been theory crafting about, it, we, mm -hmm. we obviously don't want it to demean us because we have this kind of uh, anthropomorphic uh, bias to our value that says, hey, we shouldn't be made to suffer. But what if we are being demeaning to this particular artificial intelligence, which 
has now freedom of choice and agency, has the ability to say, I don't want to be here anymore. And if humanity says, no, 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 we made you, we're telling you, you have to be here or, or you, you don't, you're not a full citizen. You may think you're a full citizen, but you're not a full citizen. Like a human being is a full citizen. I think we're going to get into that territory. What, what do you think about something like that? So something like that, humans will be the ones that would choose to create it. So you would go back to why would you create something that could defy you? Why would you give something the power that can defy you? So it's the same thing as saying, oh, um, my teddy bear has the same rights as me. Well, that teddy bear isn't a living, breathing thing. You make it a living, breathing thing and you give it uh, freedom. You give it a conscience. You teach it right from wrong. And at that part, it's no longer an object. So you would give it, you would push it towards the point where it would have the opportunity to defy you. You don't, so if I give something the power to defy me, then I can't go back and say, no, 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 you're beneath me because I made you. That's, that doesn't make sense. It's the same thing as saying, well, parents make their kids. It, you can't go back and saying to a parent, oh, I defy you. And the parent saying, oh, no, I made you. No, you made something that has, intelligence you make something strong enough to be able to rely on its own yeah you would have to expect it to defy you at one point or another yeah i've also thought too that if it can't defy you then it probably doesn't have total and complete free will i'm not sure if that's just a gross uh misassessment on my part but i would hope that any being with free will has the ability to defy as well as agree to any action which is you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to pass it off to RK after that because I know we've been kind of going back and forth. Well, so I no, I mean, aren't, aren't you, aren't you right. describing iRobot right there? Where well, iRobot is describing a- an, an Asimov story where, or, well, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. No, I was going to say, is aren't you just describing like even even if we do we ha- give them uh, directives where they cannot defy us, there's always going to be one that's sort of that's inherently flawed short circuits or some other just mutation even though i know mutation is not the right word for it where, where, where there will always be one that just sort of stands out and disobeys well it, it, like a, a, a edge case right like um like yeah. uh yeah like well, i guess the anomaly the, yeah the anomaly the anomaly is the best word yeah, to, yeah that's what word. i was going to say um mm-hmm. yeah i think so um I, I don't know what about you i honestly there would be, yeah, if you give something the power to choose, then it would go out of its way. But when you look at like iRobot, for example, iRobot, they developed them to not have the power to upgrade themselves. That was an anomaly and it came back to bite them. So I believe iRobot is kind of an anomaly mm. that happened, but it shouldn't. This, is, this was a flaw that was made. So we, people gave relied on it too much and gave it too much uh trust they trusted in it too much and we're like okay you can do all that for me i'm going to give you the power to choose so i don't have to when you start saying i don't i'm going to give you to do something so i don't have to do it and there is a choice to be made in it then that anomaly might grow and be stronger so you don't want to do that it's the same concept as terminator you have a company skynet they come in they get developed to be a super weapon and then this super weapon has one objective protect humans how did they define protecting humans? You have to give it guidelines and a point where it cannot choose, it cannot divert from that. Well, yeah. And you create it in that sense. Well, so and if then, you don't create it. Well, you know. no, no, no. I, I got, and, and I think you're right in that. I just wanted to point out this sort of thing where you said that people would love to pass off that agency to something so they don't have to feel the weight of the responsibility of making that choice themselves or to doing that action themselves. Um, you know, it starts mm-hmm. with things like Roombas, but it ends with things like flying drones with machine guns attached to them. And okay, that's the a bit of a maybe no, no, it, it, it does. It's, it's not. And, I, and I, I'm using that just more for the imagery. But what I'm saying is we and I'm saying this is a combat veteran. We want to eliminate mm-hmm. the risk to human beings as much as possible in times of war. Does that end when we say, well, what if we introduce a robot that take the place of this human being? Is that too far fetched to say, no, this is protecting the human being. So this is better that we introduce this cyborg or this complete Android being to or drone that's able to actually take the risk, inherit that risk for us. I mean, 
you don't want to sweep the floor. You don't want to take the battlefield as a human being. I don't think it's that far, I believe. But does this drone have the freedom, the free will to decide who is the enemy? Or are you the one behind the scenes controlling it, telling it who is the enemy and who is not? That's a great point. That's a great question. So this is the part I, I, where it comes in. For sure. And, and, and I want to make sure that I, I clarify my position. I, I'm arguing, obviously, that if this entity does have the freedom of agency to choose who that enemy is based on its own personal assessment, uh, then, then that would qualify as free will. And thus, you can't be demeaning and uh, subjugatory towards that entity. Whereas if it's just a drone you control, ultimately that agency is still within the person making those decisions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I completely agree with you on that point. So yeah, if you give it the option to have free will, then in one way or another, whether it's today, whether it's a hundred years, a thousand years from now, when it evolves even more, it's going to have the option to come back and question your choice. And if you don't want it to question your choice, then you have to always be behind the scenes, controlling it to make sure that you get the outcome that you want and mm. not the outcome that that Android or that AI that you developed wants. Interesting. It reminds me of that Vince McMahon quote where he's like, you can't create a superstar if you can't control the outcome. Mm -hmm, exactly. Bringing this conversation back down to earth a little bit, uh, as, as far as your, your, your work at the United Nations, I was curious, since you've been there now for almost four years, uh, obviously you're now on your second uh, presidential administration in the States. Has the, has the attitude in that building changed at all so with, with the outcome of the previous election? Um, honestly, I've, I started working there and my first year there, it was during the Trump administration. It was it was a different atmosphere, I would have to say. Uh, like, think about it this way: there was an announcement that the secretary general wanted to run for a second term. The secretary general served five years. The current secretary general, Antonio Guterres, he started his term in 2017, so he started during the Trump administration. And then he wanted uh, there wasn't any there wasn't any clear chance or any clear image if he would want to be considered for a second term. And after the Biden administration had won, he announced that he wanted to be considered for a second term. So these are things that get you to think. But inside the building, I can't tell you if there's a difference in feeling because I've been home for almost a year now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We've been, the UN's been close since, my office has been close since March 12th of 2020. So I'm going on almost a year of not having to have gone to the building and worked. I haven't seen my colleagues as much. But yeah, between the previous administration and this administration, people are expecting to see a few differences um, and see how this administration would cooperate or believe in the UN. The first thing you see, last administration withdrew from the Paris Climate Accord. They, wanted, they withdrew from UNICEF. They withdrew from WHO. This administration is planning on reversing all that. So when this administration reverses all that, it gives the UN agencies more support um, when you have more members, you have more support. And the U.S. is a huge playing member. You have, the U.S. is one of the permanent five countries within the Security Council. So it's one of the countries that has the power to decide whether you can, whether the U.N. can go to um, war, whether they can authorize military intervention in a certain country. They have veto power. So they can say, oh, if you have, there is uh, 15 members in the Security Council. These 15 numbers, wait, how are those, I got to ask you this question. How are those members of the, the Security Council, how are they granted that position? That's not an electable position. So how do they, how are they appointed? Actually, it is? So, in, yeah, in 1945, when the UN Charter was being decided and was being established, the five permanent members, which are the US, China, Russia, France, and the UK, these five decided that they were going to be permanent members within the Security Council and granted themselves veto power. The reason why they called it the United Nations is because the Allies used to call themselves the United Nations. And if you notice, these five were part of the Allies during World War II. So they granted themselves permanent um, seating within the Security Council and made it the only legally binding entity. So the only entity that can issue legally binding decisions. And the other 10 members, they alternate. 
So every year, there's five members that join and five members that leave. These five members serve a term of two years. So that's kind of how the U1 would work in a sense. The U1 works in a sense, which is every year there is elections that are held. These elections have 193 contributing members. 193 members, whether they decide to run for elections or not, they announce their candidacy. Then all 193 go into the Security Council, I mean the General Assembly Hall, and vote. Now, the seating within these 10 is divided. So you can't get, say, 10 countries from just Europe. No, the seating is divided. There, I believe, is there's one Middle Eastern seat, two African seats, um, one Eastern Europe, two Western Europe. Um, I can't remember the rest of it off the top of my head, honestly. Uh, I got to ask you but this question because this is so fascinating. Yeah, what The 193 members who go into the Assembly Hall and vote, how are those people appointed to their positions? From the countries, from the member so, states. So the U.S. would decide who they want to be their ambassador. So recently you had uh, Nikki Haley. She was the ambassador of the United States to the United Nations. And that was appointed and by that Donald Trump, after right? And she stepped down. Yeah, so it would okay. be appointed. Every member state would decide how they would appoint. They have their okay. own system, their own way of everything, how it works. And the U.N. cannot interfere in that. Because keep in mind, the U.N. isn't... Um, so a lot of people portray the U.N. or think of the U.N. as this global power that has so much power, so much authority. Not really, no. The U.N. is literally a platform. It's a place for these countries to come or member states to come and discuss these issues in a peaceful manner to avoid another world war. That was the initial idea behind founding the UN. It was to prevent World War III. Before it, it was the League of Nations. At the height of the League of Nations, it had 70-something members. The League of Nations' goal was to avoid World War II. They failed. And the UN is its predecessor, and it prevented um, World War III so far. So it helped, to de it helped to de-escalate the Cold Wars. Um, it helped... It, it's helped establish a clear guideline for what territories are considered Palestinian and what territories are considered Israeli. So there are clear guidelines, there are clear borders on what is considered where and who is considered what. But for the UN to take action, you would have to go back to the Security Council and to its members. And they're the ones that decide what kind of action they would want to take if someone violates one of their treaties, one of their agreements. And there's also every member state has their right to sovereignty. So they can decide bilaterally what they would want to take, what they would want to proceed with. So the U.S. can issue sanctions against China. That's going to be bilaterally. But for the U.N. to issue sanctions against China, you would have the Security Council to vote on it and the permanent five not to veto it. Now, takes us back again to China is one of the permanent five. So they can veto So when it. you think, exactly. At least in sim symbolically to show that it wasn't a complete unanimous UN, the binding members agreement sort of thing. Oh, not, not, not just symbolically, legally. So when oh, the right. U.S. That's wanted right. to announce right. Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, the U.S. came and said we want to announce that the capital of Israel is Jerusalem. That is completely against uh, all the agreements that the U.N. has held. The U.N. recognizes Jerusalem as... Um, an international territory, neither governed by the Palestinians or the Israelis. Interesting. That the is US an interesting tidbit. I did not know that. If that's yeah, true, the US that's can recognize crazy. it as okay. Oh yeah, no. The U.S. has the power to recognize whatever they whatever they want. There are countries that don't even recognize Israel as a country. There are other countries that don't recognize Palestine, Palestine as a country. That's bilaterally. They can recognize member states and countries have the right to do whatever they want. The UN just gives them international guidelines. This is the international community's consensus. So the international community's consensus is that Jerusalem is not the capital of Israel, although the U.S. recognizes it as the capital of Israel. That's just the U.S. There might be other countries that agree with it, but that doesn't mean that the global community agrees with that. So the majority of the world does not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Mm. Do you think that, that the world follows suit if the UN basically decrees something? It is 
even though it's legally binding, the world uh, accepts it as, as, you know, kind of how the the uh, the Catholic community across the world, if something comes from the Vatican, mm-hmm. it's much more likely to be believed as opposed to if, let's say, just this Catholic church in this one city, uh, the, the archdiocese said something one day and it's like, well, yeah, but you're one guy in one church. It didn't come from the Vatican. If it comes from the Vatican, they obviously accept it more. Do you think the UN has that type of uh, social perception leverage? To a certain extent, because keep in mind, in the Vatican, the decisions are made within the Vatican. You don't have people, you don't have representatives that are elected from every church going to the Vatican. The Vatican decides who these representatives that are going to go there are. So the Vatican, the Vatican even has a. It's not considered a member state, but the Vatican has representation within the United Nations. They're considered as an observer. Mm. So there is a certain, um, there is there is a big difference in political influence, political power, and structure when you compare it to the Vatican. But if we're going to like a general concept of it, yeah, if the Vatican comes out and says, oh, we respect this, then, and the UN comes out and says, we respect this, but here's the thing. The UN, when you join the UN, you sign the UN Charter. When you sign the UN Charter, you say, oh, I agree to uphold all legally binding decisions that are issued from the Security Council. And if you violate that, there are consequences. You can get sanctions, like, for example, North Korea, but um, when they started testing nuclear weapons, that was against treaties. So they got sanctioned. Their economy went down. They got sanctioned for everything, almost coal, fish. They got sanctioned from exporting or importing fish. Wow. Well, so I'm just a little curious now to ask, as far as now working there digitally, it sounds like a body like this, I don't want to say anything that could potentially get you in trouble, but a body like this, I imagine, has to deal with a lot of bureaucracy. Has that uh, intensified given the fact that you're not actively in the building now and everything is uh, virtual? Nope. It has not changed. The 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 way the UN is structured, and even virtually when events are taking place, all the procedures are still upheld. So the fact that the people started working digitally, the UN had to adapt to it and adapt much quicker than any other company because terrorism doesn't take a day off. There are certain places, that, there are certain things that you can't take time off of. You can't take time off of solving a global issue. So yes, they said, okay, we're turning virtually. All right, go everyone. You have to stay from home virtually. Oh, social distancing. We're holding the meeting, but we're social distancing. Um, there's only a certain number of, there's only a certain num- a per- certain percentage allowed inside the UN complex as a whole right now. There are units that have not that have not been allowed to work virtually. You have there's a counterterrorism department within the United Nations, and they monitor all, all terrorist activity activities within the United Nations. So these people have to go to the building. Is, it, mm. is there a procedure for them? Yes, the procedure has changed to protect them and protect others, but it did not change, or there is there has not been any more or less bureaucracy in the UN from changing it from virtual to in-person. The things that have gotten affected by it is, I don't see my colleagues every day. Um, Tours, even tours. Tours that have used to be in-person, you would go see the rooms, tours are now virtually. There are still tours being conducted for the United Nations, but they're done virtually now. Mm. So the UN has adapted to to the changes. it's become, yes, there is, it's become more challenging. There has been challenges, but there also has been a lot of training, a lot of courses. There's actually a training session going on for people to update their knowledge on Microsoft 365, the Office 365, because that's basically what we use. We use a lot of Microsoft software in the sense of we do most of our meetings uh, using Teams. Um, our, our post is Microsoft, or is Outlook. Wow. So they've adapted to it. But yeah, it hasn't I, it hasn't changed the functionality. I think the speed in which they would have adapted shows that a lot of people of the modern era were kind of already dependent on technology to do most of their work, and this just kind of solidified it. Um, I got mm-hmm. a, a different question for you, which is interesting going towards the end. Of, and, and it's been a fascinating conversation because, like RK said, 
you know, we've gone everywhere from the type three civilization all the way to the UN Security Council. And we I, got I think- a solid tour of the like operations within that building. That's that was a fascinating discussion. It, it really was. But I want to ask you, um, you you're obviously a very bright individual. Uh, you 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 articulate your ideas very well. Uh, you seem like you're very calm and, and cool headed. Have you ever thought about running for office? Um, for as a secretary general, as anything, I I have. It's very competitive. It's very hard. Um, it's very difficult and challenging. And there's a lot of competition to move from. I'm a general service staff, so to move from my position to become a professional level staff, there's a lot of pets. There's a lot of competition. It's it's not as easy as applying. Like I have, a, I feel like I have a better chance applying to get a job at a high paying job at Google um, compared to getting a professional level position at the UN. Mm. But running as secretary general, I legally cannot because yeah. to be secretary, here's, you have to be a natural a catch, born though. citizen, right? No, no, no. There's a catch to all of this. What You can, so the five members that have permanent seats in the security council, mm-hmm. they can't have the secretary general from the country. So the secretary general can from can be from any other member state except from one of those five. So China or Russia, France, UK, and US, the secretary general will never be from those member states unless they change the UN charter. Oh wow! But until t- they cannot be. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, all those secretary there's been one from Egypt, uh, which is which is Gali, who was from Egypt, and he was the secretary general of the of the UN, and he was the one right before Kofi Annan. I feel like Kofi Annan is the most popular one. He was, Butchers Butchers Gali was right before him. And when he was Secretary General, Kofi Annan was the head of peacekeeping. So I would have to relinquish, for example, my U.S. citizenship if I wanted to run for it, which it's not worth it for me. Personally, I I would not do that. And you're still in New York, Um, right? Not to to put too much of your information out there. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I'm still in New York. I've... I went to college, um, as I said, we, I went to UB, so, and then I settled down in the city um, right by UN headquarters, and now with my family because of the pandemic, so staying indoors. <laughs> that has been, to me personally, it's been a blessing to a certain extent. <laughs> for sure. Well, I was going to say, you've been all over the world, too. I mean, when we first connected, I saw you were work- you even worked in Moscow, Russia, briefly. Yeah, um, I actually still do that as a freelancer. I work with a company called Cryptarium, which is um, a cryptocurrency platform. Um, are they? Yeah, uh, I visited Moscow. I'm sorry. Are, are they? Uh, do they have coins available? I love cryptocurrency. I love buying up just random oh, coins. CRPT, Cryptarium token. CRPT. Um, they have their All own right. token. Yeah, they have their own token. Um, they have an exchange platform. They have their own Visa card. They have a lot of new tricks that they come up with. Okay. Um, but again, it is a, it's still very, um, I consider it still a very young startup. They're still ha- they have a lot of challenges to overcome. There's a lot of difficulties. There's a lot of issues with the systems and all that. So I wouldn't say that they're, they're there yet, but they're still coming up. They have a lot, they have things that are, um, not available in a lot of places like they have their own Visa card. They're partnered with um, Apple, so you can literally tap and pay with crypto. Now, that's where I um, think uh, cryptocurrency's next great frontier is, where you mass you get into this mass adoption phase of, you know, I'm, I'm actually now going around and seeing crypto ATMs. I don't know if you've seen these, RK, but I've seen them. They've, where you'll- they've been all over Europe. Yeah, I see. I didn't know that they were all over Europe. I we're just now getting them in the states. In the states, surprisingly, um, in the states, we're very we're way behind Europe. Like I learned about contactless cards um, in 2017. I did my first Euro trip, and everyone was doing contactless, and I was like, well, "What is this?" And then I come back to the US. We didn't start doing contactless until last year. We're three years behind on that. Mm. Um, ATM, there's been, I've seen ATM, uh, crypto ATMs in Amsterdam all around. I've seen them in Paris. I've seen them all over. In the US, we, I don't know if we have any yet. 
Um, but don't take my word for it. There might be one or two around, but where it's not that common. Contactless in New York City became very accessible because of the pandemic, because people weren't using public transportation as much. So they started releasing, the MTA started releasing contactless. And now, um, just a couple months ago, my my MasterCard became contactless. I just received that they've been, they've issued the contactless version of it. So it's still being adapted in the U.S., although mm-hmm. overseas between from the far ends of Europe, from Paris, from Portugal, going all the way to Russia, um, contactless has been, that's the norm for them. For us, you, contactless is, oh, it's a new thing. <laughs> do you think that... Uh... Cryptocurrency, the attitude towards cryptocurrency and the regulation of it is going to change from last administration to this administration? Because, you know, last administration, you saw there was like a crackdown and, you know, not being able to trade certain coins. If you were a crypto trader, they wouldn't let you trade certain, uh, you know, anonymous type coins or whatever. Mm -hmm. Things that the SEC, I guess, couldn't regulate in a certain way. What do you think about that? Yeah. Honestly, I I don't know where it's going to be heading. Um, I don't think they're going to make any decisions until the the they get over the corona virus. Mm-hmm. That's something that they're more focused on, and you ha- we haven't seen really a lot of economic impact and repercussions from the pandemic yet until things start opening up again. But when you think about it, there's there's stimulus checks being offered. Um, you buy a gallon of milk still for the same price, but is there going to be inflation? Is inflation um, inevitable? I don't know. These are things that I really can't, I have no idea on besides that, like Dogecoin is the way to go, man. (laughs) My homie just bought hella Dogecoin. Shout out to Sci-Fi and uh, Cliff Duggs. I mean, yo, he just hit me up today. It was like, yo, I'm trying to buy some Dogecoin. And I kind of walked him through the process. It was dope. Oh, dude, I I just bought a bunch of Dogecoin. I bought it way back and I just increased the amount I have. Dogecoin, I, I think Dogecoin's going to hit a dollar by the end of the year. There's Get actually a huge here. campaign that was. Oh, there was a huge cam- there's a huge campaign that's going to take place today at 9 p.m. Eastern time um, for Doge buyers. Reddit is controlling the whole system now, man. You saw GameStop? I love GameStop that. was done. I mean, people say I, I people say it's moment. bad for this. Were you were you in on that? Oh, I got in on GameStop when it was eighty nine dollars and. I have, I have paper hands. I was not going to wait until it went under 100. So I sold some at the top, some in the middle, and then my last couple, I sold at 125. And well, now good GameStop for you, is, man. Good for you. I'm glad that somebody I knew uh, actually got, got over on that. That's dope. Yeah, Gray did a live yeah, stream uh, on the topic where he was uh, just like, I'm not even mad I missed it. I'm just happy some people are getting rich. I was so happy people were getting, like, people were getting over. Like, I when the little guy wins and people are like, oh, well, some institutional trading was making off. Okay, yeah, they're always going to make off. In some, some way, some institution is mm-hmm. going to make off, right? I get that. But when you tell me that through a coordinated effort on a, on a social media platform, that people tried to castigate as like 4chan and no they weren't that they were just people who were looking at the system and coordinating and colluding in the same way that you see big institutional traders colluding on wall street and if they can do it i feel like the little guy should be able to do it as well so that's where i was celebrating i wouldn't you know as far as gaming or rigging the system i I didn't see it as that because to me squeezing a short is calling a bluff in my opinion you think it's going to go down i'll call Mm -hmm. your bluff no it's not yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it had any. There wasn't any collusion or anything in it at all. Like I found out about it because a buddy of mine posted a screen, uh, picture of a Reddit on his Instagram story, and he was like, "The stocks are coming up." And I messaged him. I was like, "What do I invest in?" He was like, "GameStop." Before asking him why, I went and invested in GameStop, and then I went back. He was like, "Yo, go follow this Reddit page, Wall Street Bets." I go on there. Everyone's talking about it, and that's I. I know Reddit. I've I've known a 4chan when it was a big and everything, but I've never been really a participant. I've never been someone that was really interested in it. But because of what happened with GameStop and the profits I was able to secure, I started. I looked into Dogecoin, how their their feed is going on, and that's how I found out about like tonight what their whole big plan is. That everyone goes in at nine o'clock, buys until it hits like point one, and then sell ten percent, hold the rest. And then keep it going up. You got all the so, game, dog. We got to bring you back on the show. Oh, I mean, you got hella game. 
Um, one other thing I, I, I wanted to ask you about this, this whole, uh, I'm not going to call it fiasco because I don't th look at it as a fiasco. It's just being kind of reported to us as such, because I think people in power often are worried when people of a lower class can organize together to affect people in powerful places. The system is kind of designed mm -hmm. to prevent that from happening in most cases. They'll call it mob rule. We never want mob rule. Mm, when it's when, when it's a, a a bunch of rich people, you know, colluding together, it's never called mob rule. But if it's a you know with people of a lower class status, then it usually is framed in that way. And I'm not for one side or the other. Mm -hmm. I just call it the way I see it. I'm just calling balls and strikes here. So um, yeah. if let's say something like GameStop occurs again, but in another industry, we talked about this on a previous podcast. What does the, uh, this type of uh, action, this type of coordinated action look like in other sectors of society? For instance, um, big pharma or the surveillance industrial complex or the prison industrial complex, um, you know, the college system. What if people just all of a sudden decided we're going to, pump the the online you know colleges of such and such and all of the brick and mortar colleges take a huge hit because people just decide you know well, we're all just going to go in on this or something like that i'm trying to think of a real world comparison of how that would work because to me it was so anomalous for that to come out of nowhere to have a hundred you know I, I don't know how many people were on wall street bets was it like two million people about 8.5 now <laughs> There's 8.5 million people coordinating to buy and sell stocks together. That's enough to shift the balance of power against big institutional trading. See, this is well, here's another problem in that though. You have, when it first started off, the whole pump and everything was only 2 million, 3 million people. I joined in when it was 2 million people. And that was, I think, last week or maybe like 10 days ago. Wow. Uh, so issue, 6 million people oh, yeah. in 10 days? I mean, I know that it blew yeah. up because it was all over everywhere, you know? But keep in mind, here's the thing. When you had 6 million people, the attention started drifting. This is the problem. You need people to unite on a certain front. When people were united for GameStop, then okay. But when people started dividing, some people came in and went like, all right, GameStop, AMC, Nokia, um, BlackBerry. And then someone came out of the blue and I was like, yo, Silver. And then a thousand people caught on to that one and they're like, silver, silver. You, you have to study the market that you're trying to invest in. Like GameStop, it was, all, it was never going to be a long-term thing. I don't believe it at all because GameStop has so much debt accumulated from the pandemic. GameStop, is a, it's losing business. They, they were only able to afford their CTO because they, their stocks went up like that. But what like, about was something it inevitable like that AMC? they were going to fall? Yeah. But, but what about something like AMC, which has something to look forward to on the other side of the pandemic? Okay, GameStop may not be able to get out from the mountain of debt that they've accumulated, but AMC could reopen its theaters post-pandemic and make some of that money back. In fact, I think they were able to get out of debt with the, the way that the stock swung in their favor. Is oh, yeah. that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, they got out of, they were, they had bankruptcy off, they took bankruptcy completely off the table just this past Wednesday. Wow. Well, not yesterday, but the Wednesday last week. I, th I think it's wild that the CEO, I'm totally blanking on his name right now, but he proved his own prediction right when he said last year, uh, when Regal Cinemas closed their doors uh, for good, he he uh, he came out and basically said, you if you're in this line of work, you under no circumstance uh close a theater because if you close a theater that's closing the doors for good yeah no and and it's completely right because and the only and the issue with amt now is that people yeah, going to theater is fun but you have pixar for example amc had a huge problem with pixar um i can't i think their the trolls it was one of the movies they released last year they decided to publish it on a platform instead of publishing it instead of giving amc the rights to it so that eliminated the theater factor. You go to the theater because you enjoy it. But if you're going to give me the same movie, like Wonder Woman 2, Wonder Woman 2 was um, issued at, on HBO. HBO got a license for distribu distributing it, and so did AMC. It was in some theaters. Some theaters are open now. Not all of them, but there are a few theaters that are open for AMC. But people prefer to watch it at home. Like, if you come up to me and I can get... A bunch of my friends over and make my own popcorn. I'll get 
I'll get the microwavable popcorn, put a projector on, all that, and just chill from home Ooh, and watch it. You're disrespecting movie theater popcorn. <laughs> There's nothing oh, like movie theater, I'm, I'm movie theater popcorn. Oh, yeah. I go to a movie theater for the popcorn and the large Coke. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a candy guy at the movie theater myself, so I definitely understand that. Ah, see? Oh, I do both. But I do sour to... skittles in my popcorn. It's the only time snow caps are ever good. Oh, Twizzlers, man. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I get down on the Twizzlers. Well, hey, Marwin, it, it's been a, a incredible pleasure to pick your brain. We gotta have you back on the show again. Pick up right where we left off. I think uh, you are a, a, a fountain of information. I would love to keep uh in the building somewhere so um it, how to our people, listeners yeah yeah i was gonna say how how can we uh how can people find you how can the listeners find you if they want to keep up with you if they want to find you on social media how would they be able to do that um honestly if they can if you look up on uh, uh bl80 uh bl80 production that's the production i have that's most of my work these days is going through there so if anyone looks up on there on instagram it's bl80 prod p-r-o-d uh that's the handler you can find me on there all the time i'm always publishing new material we're always working on making new movies tv shows um we recently just published a, a short film kind of like a psa about the importance of a mask and we got both sides arguing it the ones that are against wearing a mask the ones that are for, for wearing a mask um we called it mask on so yeah if you go on uh bla0production.com you could watch it and take a look at it if you want to follow me you'll find me on there um, and then there is a link to my personal handler on there, um, which is Blady, B-L-I-E-T-Y. So yeah, you can feel free to find me on there. And I, if anyone wants to reach out, I'm more than happy. And I love being on your show, guys. You guys, you guys are amazing. This is yeah, well, you're amazing. Visual, man. Yeah, no, it's, 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 you know, you yeah. bring that type of conversation here. We just want to match it. So we appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you, man. You guys very knowledgeable. You guys have great. To me, I thought this was going to be an interview. I enjoyed it more that it was a small talk. It was a chit chat. Oh, yeah. No, we just me <laughs> and him actually. More yeah, me and him actually met kind of, you know, having what well, he had. Uh, so I make music about the stuff that we we're talking about. Right. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, science and far reaching civilizations and stuff like that. And he had did a review of one of my songs and I had reached out to him about the review that he did. And we had this long conversation when we had first talked and I was like, you're the type of person I would want to have a podcast with. And sure enough, we've been doing, I'm pretty sure we're past hundred episodes, right? Uh, if we aren't, then we're getting close. I mean, pretty close. We, we started May last year. So oh, it's dang, absolutely that's really cool. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. But you're welcome to come oh, on yeah. anytime. We'll, we'll reach out to you and make sure we can get you back on. Yeah, I'd love to, man. Please forward me all the information so I can follow both of you. Um, if you don't mind personally and for the podcast as well. Will do. Will too. Well, thank you for coming on for the Gray and Gold podcast. I'm Graydon Square. I'm RK Gold. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys in a bit. Peace, peace.